we could probably do some sort of calculation on the PSI that you can exert. The movable rod can hold up to 8,000 pounds. I was looking up and like, what's the structural integrity of concrete? No, we're, we're not getting into this, no. <laughs> on the borderlands of New York City. I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 42 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how to get the most out of published adventures. But first, the party gets its final prophecy in the Morning Glory campaign, and the juggernaut can't be stopped in the Character Creation Forge. Alright, before we get to all that, we should talk about the DMs Guild. Those of you who follow Shane on Twitter may have an idea of what he wants to talk about. Uh, yeah, I went on a bit of a Twitter rant this week. I noticed. Uh, yeah, I noticed you stayed mum. <laughs> well, I was on my mini moon. So oh, oh, right. <laughs> I just saw it while I was like at a bed and breakfast. I was like, oh, all right, cool. <laughs> yeah, so so what happened is there's a Kickstarter project called The Coming Dark. It's an adventure that was originally expected to fund on Kickstarter, do their art and layout and all that stuff, get it sent out to backers, and then published on the DMs Guild for sale. And drive through RPG, one bookshelf, the company behind the DMs Guild, basically said, no, that's against our terms of service. You can't advertise using the DMs Guild if you're going to sell it any other place. And that would include Kickstarter. So you can't give it to your Kickstarter backers as part of your Kickstarter if you're going to sell it on the DMs Guild. And it's just like yet another stupid and short-sighted policy surrounding Wizards of the Coast, <laughs> right? I mean... What good does that do for anybody? All Kickstarter is going to do is get better content on the DMs Guild, and it's over like 100 backers. 100 people are going to get it outside of DMs Guild. Who cares? Right, like how much money could that possibly be? Yeah, so the backer level is 8 bucks to get the adventure. So let's pretend it sells for 8 bucks to 100 people. That's $400 of commission. That's split between Wizards and one bookshelf. So we're talking about 200 bucks each just to keep control of the name in a Kickstarter. And it's like, we were supposed to be getting the iTunes Apple model, right? Don't you see, buy it on the App Store in every single app. Everyone gets to use that because it helps the, the App Store grow. It's just so incredibly dumb. I mean, it, yeah, it's record company levels of short-sightedness. Yeah, grow the product, get better content on the DMs Guild, get art and all of the like, fit and finish right, and people will pay more money on the DMs Guild. It will become a destination. It's just frustrating. Support creators. <laughs> Please, support creators. So you were very frustrated. I understand why. I think for me, it's a bit like hearing that Donald Trump pretended to be his own PR guy. You know, like, it it played to type. I wasn't surprised by this news, so I, I didn't get that upset about it. It was just sort of, ah, of course, more disappointing news. Yeah, well, you know, there's some of us who hope for better <laughs> and some of us who have one foot grounded in reality <laughs> people always say that about you how positive you are <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> all right but that doesn't mean that we are giving up on the dms guild no we are still going to support creators and support customers of the dms guild by reviewing content that we find there because we've noticed that many of the reviews on the dungeon masters guild are unreliable so we started doing reviews with consistent rubrics no more five stars because there happen to be a hundred feet in a random document. Yeah, we want to dig into that document and figure out, are those feats good? Are they going to screw up your game? Are they useful? Are they different from what we already have? Mm -hmm. But of course, because there is so much content that is poorly reviewed, we don't necessarily know where to look. So if you know of a piece of DM Skilled content that you want reviewed, or you have created one that you want reviewed, uh, send it over to us. Uh, drop us a line at totalpartythrill at gmail.com or uh, message us on Twitter at tbtcast. Yeah, right now, the easiest way to find stuff is to look in the top sellers, and that's already well covered, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we want to look for things outside of that list, you know, that, that deserves maybe a bump or some recognition. Right, those hidden gems. Exactly. So we do have a review this week. We are reviewing the Lightborn race. It's a very short PDF from Mark Hulmes. Holmes, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. I probably am. I'm trying to scroll to the bottom of it, but this PDF is so slow to load because it is gigantic. It is. <laughs> it's a it, 21 megabyte file 
for a three-page PDF. It could use some compression. Yeah, yeah. So so Mark is the dungeon master for High Rollers, which is a D&D Twitch stream based in the UK. And my understanding is that the Lightborn is a race that he created for his setting for the game that they run on the show. You put it well. <laughs> the, the Lightborn is like the positive energy version of the Azamar. They're courageous, bold, leader-type race. They're humans that have an infusion of positivity, basically. Mm-hmm. And the worst kinds of them tend toward fanaticism. It's really sort of the, the worst thing you can say about them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the greater good just That's drives right. too much. Yeah. Most of their abilities are focused around uh, positive energy, hope, and heroism, and light. So I think it's a cool concept. And the art is very good, especially considering that this is a DMs Guild product because the art typically isn't very good. No, no. I, I mean, this, this art was clearly created for this piece, so that's great. Yeah, I would give a shout-out to uh, Kit Bus who did the art. I like when things have clear credits. But I will say that it's a short document, uh, but it's, it's in need of a good editor. There are a few too many typos and comma splices, especially given the short length. Yeah, the art and the concept are great. I love that. Mm-hmm. But the mechanics are just a little sloppy. They don't quite use the terminology that you find in the published material, right? So things like once per day instead of this recharges on a long rest, mm-hmm. you know, like that that kind of stuff where it just it starts to add up. Right. So the rubric that we have, uh, again, uh, similar to reviewing adventures is five metrics uh, but these metrics are slightly different because obviously there are different criteria for judging a race yeah so we have presentation which is similar you know that's the overall fit and finish the polish of the document mm-hmm. we have lore which is its contribution to world building and, and expanding a setting we have mechanics which is the balance and implementation we have flavor which is how the mechanics fit the lore that's created as part of this race. And then we have playability, which is, is it fun to play? Is it <laughs> going to screw up your game? Right. right. Are your players going to want to use it? Exactly. So presentation, we talked about this, uh, and we we did decide it gets a two. Yeah, I think it's actually below average. You notice the comma splices. There's word choice errors you know there's a, a misspelling of a skill yeah like, I, these are things that would have been caught by just any spell check uses whilst a few too many times yeah once once per document yeah knows. yeah it's yeah. just a pro tip and then uh in in one instance there's a comma that shouldn't be there that actually changes the meaning of one of the abilities yeah that's it could use another pass and to his credit the author has responded in the comments and is going to upload a revised version but we have not seen that yet as of May 15th when right. we're recording and this. it's already live and people are paying for it right now so exactly yeah uh, but you know two strong points for the layout and the art yeah because the layout is good it looks exactly like you expect a PHB race to look mm-hmm. and then the art is is really great lore we gave it a four we both think the idea of the lightborn race is really cool I especially like and I'm glad that you actually noticed this that it's sort of a non-divine Azamar, because I like the concept of the Azamar. I just don't want to play a celestial touched race. Right, like right? dad was an angel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's a little, a little squicky. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I like that this is just, you are a beacon of hope for humanity. I, I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Mechanics, we settled on a three, because there's nothing broken here. There's nothing where if you had it in your game, it would cause a problem for other players uh, or for a GM. No, the the main mechanic for this class is the ability to cast the heroism spell, which mm-hmm. is a second level spell. It gives you your charisma modifier in temp HP to the target. Not a big deal, <laughs> right? Not a particularly strong spell. That's fine. And then it also gets an ability that when it's reduced to zero hit points it is instead reduced to one. Which is a strong ability. Right. And then as a reaction can cast heroism for the day. Right. Uh if you've already cast heroism though that part of the ability is wasted yeah and then the way that the heroism spell is written you can only cast it once per day but the level at which you cast it increases whereas other races that have this kind of spell-like ability structure can cast different spells yeah i don't know if that was intended and that's just sort of another like uh, it needs one more pass at editing right (laughs) and then also 
again, I don't know if this was intended, but you know, when you do drop to that one hit point, that's a great ability, but then you shine like a lantern for a minute. <laughs> yeah. I, which... <laughs> your, your hair <laughs> emits bright light. It's a little super saiyan. I'm fine with that, but maybe you were trying to hide and that's why you got knocked down. <laughs> right. just, it's no hit point. Yeah. I think that's, well, let's get into the flavor which is which we gave a five because i think these mechanics are are a really cool way of implementing that lore right that that flavor of the class including your hair glowing brightly i think is hilarious Mm -hmm. i also like the idea that as these uh, lightborn are more common and more prevalent in your setting people are going to learn that when their heads glow (laughs) (laughs) they've they've recently been almost killed (laughs) Almost got him. One more good blow. Exactly. (laughs) It's like the flashing warning over the boss's head in your (laughs) MMO. (laughs) But I think it can be difficult to put together a race because it's a small design space. So in order to pick flavorful but also meaningful and useful abilities, that that can be complicated. And I think this does a really good job of it. Um, Advantage on saving those against being frightened. Not particularly strong, but works really well for the class, and it's still useful. And it works at every level. Yeah. You know, it's not going to break anything at any level, but it's always going to remain useful. Mm-hmm. And then playability. We give this a four because I think in practice, most reasonable GMs will look at this and go, oh, okay, you know, I have some minor tweaks just to make it make sense. It's not going to be a problem having anyone bring this in. It's not going to wreck anything or ruin anyone's fun. And I, I think there are a lot of people who might play a race like this and really enjoy the abilities and the flavor of the race. Yeah, yeah, agreed. All right, so you add all that up, and you average it, and you get 3.6 stars. So how does that translate in terms of stars on the DM's Guild ratings? Well, it should round up to four stars. However, like you said, an update is supposed to be coming. Yeah, I, I think in its current form, the presentation issues, you know, that 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 sloppiness, it needs to be cleaned up. I mm-hmm. think it's a three. You know, if you sort that stuff out, it's a solid four, and I'd recommend it. But I would like to see that done before we recommend it. Yeah, I agree. It's currently pay what you want and an average contribution of $1.86. So how do you feel about that? Seems a bit high to me. I mean, it's one race. It's yeah, that's that's my thing. It's mm-hmm. three pages, you know. So I, it's I like it's like two pages spread over three pages. Right. Yeah. yeah two and a half. <laughs> so yeah, I I don't want to say don't pay for it, right? I don't I don't like that no, idea. No, I will say like, I will say that right now. Don't pay for it right now. There's supposed to be an update coming. When the update comes, I would definitely look at it. And if these things are fixed, and they're not difficult to fix, these things are fixed. Uh, yeah, I'd pay a dollar. Yeah. I might pay $2. I have trouble paying $2 for any race. (laughs) As you said, it's a small design space. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I think maybe a dollar is fine. Tip your creators. Perfect. Yeah, so let's move on to the Morning Glory campaign. Last week, the party had escaped Durasturin, but ended up right back in the Pit of Five Sorrows, surrounded by the Omnimental, a raging storm of fire and rocks and lightning and ice. Yeah, a yeah. real charming guy. <laughs> had a lot of personality. <laughs> Fortunately, if if you recall, Lou had left the party earlier to go to the prophetic observatory and just sort of stared at the sky for a little while. And one of the snippets of information she had grasped was a way that the party thought would help keep the Omnimental at bay. The dark breath of empty space comes a fundamental tempest. And with the right knowledge checks, you realize that some combination of a spell with the air descriptor and negative energy would sort of create a area that it couldn't enter. So in terms of how this played out in session, we ended one session in the Pit of Five Sorrows, surrounded by the Omnimental, feeling utterly screwed, and then restarted our, our next game session right at that point. So you had a week in between to figure out how to bail us out of this Omnimental problem. <laughs> no, she had already had that snippet went from the Prophetic Observatory. Oh, she already had that? Mm-hmm. They, I sort of built into the Omnimental, like, because, you know, if it if it caught you guys, you guys were screwed. Yes. Right. So I built, built in uh, a couple different uh, ways to get around it, one of which was trying to figure out how to use this bit of the prophecy. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, it did feel like we got very bailed out a little bit. That was was pretty tough. You can thank Lou for wandering off and and completely ignoring the quest. Yeah. What would have happened (laughs) if she hadn't done that? I hadn't planned for her not to do that. Yeah. Well, fair (laughs) enough. All right. So that holds it at bay long enough for uh, you guys, for the party to realize that the uh, Durstone's domain and the Pit of Five Stars are in coterminous uh, positions, almost like two planes, and that they are slowly moving out of alignment. So the party holds it off long enough, they use the manual of the planes again and escape to Irian to, to heal up. It's a safe space, and they're able to teleport back to Vervitharex to meet the chamber and say, hey, we succeeded, give us our money. That's <laughs> <laughs> really what it was about, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> they did give you the money. They gave you the Horde of Astaroth, which I think totaled 68,000 gold pieces. Yeah, it was a ton of gold. Mm-hmm. It was it was enough to, you know, start launching some subplots. <laughs> <laughs> they also give Lou info on the Dalkir. So Lou's player Susie had uh, originally, when we first started this campaign, said, I want to be a Dalkir Half-Blood, which was a 3.5 race. And so I sort of mocked something up. And, you know, her arc was Lou believed that she was sort of the, the reincarnation of um, a horrible abomination from Zoriat and that she was trying to reclaim her original power. But, you know, when, when we were talking out of character, Susie was saying, you know, I don't know if that's actually true or if Lou's crazy. And and I, I don't want to decide. I want you to decide. So this was basically me slipping her, her information as to, like, what was actually the truth about her character. And she was, I will note, a little bit crestfallen because the information that I gave her basically said that the half the Dalkir Half-Bloods were created by uh, Trapped Dalkir, uh, sort of bred as part of a program to uh, build bodies for them so that they could then escape the wards of Kyber. So when she read that, she was like, oh, so I guess I'm the empty vessel. (laughs) (laughs) Another snippet of uh, information that she had uh, garnered from the Prophetic Observatory was a picture of a dragon mark that nobody recognized, except for Jen Carlerix, the bronze dragon, who was the leader of the chamber, who said, oh, yeah, I know that one. That's the mark of death. That was on some elves. We killed them all 3,000 years ago. Yeah. It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And, of course, probably won't come up again. I'm sure that won't come up at all yeah, later on. at all. <laughs> and then, of course, the dragons had promised to share their information uh, about the Draconic Prophecy. And they present the party with what they later realized was their final prophecy, which was vestiges of rigid caste, wrath, cold life, and claw. One good and two of evil, one chaotic, two of law. Purest blood of dragon's sire, bound in broken scale. Mirthless jester's frozen heart, torn from palest jail. Naive, six-faced golden child, perfectly unmade. Breaker of the gorgon's nest, clad in living blade. Gather these and speak the essence of thy enemy, who now must fight on equal terms, without divinity. This one we figured out pretty quickly. (laughs) That's right. This was a fetch quest. (laughs) (laughs) But we'll talk more about that next week all right let's move on to our main topic then using published adventures so there are two ways to use a published adventure one is to just run it as written or you can use it as a reference and resource material for other published adventures that you want to run or for your own homebrew yeah and i think we do both right Mm -hmm. sometimes we run it as written with our own little modifications and sometimes we just break it apart into its core design and pick the pieces that we like and kind of chop and screw and remix them right yeah i think that's almost the best thing to do with especially when you don't have a ton of new material one of the best things to do is to use things more than once so you can actually run a published adventure once and then once you understand it really well break it into its parts and start using it to so many other ideas yeah you know i've run probably the same adventure quote unquote the same adventure you know, a dozen times just with different names or with like this set of rooms over this in this session and this set of rooms in a different session. Most recently I ran Out of the Abyss, that one, mm-hmm. uh, which starts you in the Underdark in jail. And that became the backbone for our Rogue Trader campaign, yeah. <laughs> start, starting in the Dark Eldar jail. <laughs> yep, just file off those serial numbers. Yep. That works really well. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about running a published adventure out of the book. There's less prep with running a published adventure than there is creating one from scratch. But you still need to go through a certain number of steps in order to understand what you're dealing with. Uh, I I don't know that I agree that there's less prep, actually. (laughs) (laughs) 
to get to the same level of detail, there's less prep. That's true. To have the same amount planned. Yeah, but do, but do you really need that? Mm. I, that's the question, right? As, okay. as you get more comfortable improvising and, and you become a, a lower prep GM, if you will, <laughs> it's it's a lot of times it's more work to run a published adventure. But right. either way, the first step to preparing to run a published adventure, right? You got to read the adventure. Right. But don't read straight through it first. It's usually just too much information to take in all at once. You'll forget most of it. You'll get things confused. And most adventures sort of detail different paths the party can take. So reading straight through it right off the bat just confuses timelines in your head. It's also a really bad representation of what a party's experience is probably going to be when you're actually running them through it. Yeah, this is where I always got tripped up when I first started mm. DMing, you know, as a as a high schooler, is I would buy a published adventure and this was during the third edition days. So Lots of the published adventures were very location-based, mm-hmm. and it was a dungeon crawl map. There might be some intrigue and, and sort of alternate approaches to it, but you were still effectively going room by room for encounters. Mm-hmm. And I would just read 1 through 30 in order, <laughs> not looking at the map <laughs> and not thinking, okay, so how are the players actually going to go through this, right? Well, if they can go from room 3 to room 23... Uh-huh. That's how I should read this. Right. <laughs> like, oh, they connect like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm you know, instead I'm reading about the storeroom, which is <laughs> great in numerical order and useless in chronological order, mm-hmm. you know. Good adventures will have a synopsis at the beginning, and that's going to explain the task that is presented to the party. It's going to explain all the different, well, many of the different options that the party has, and it's going to give you an overview of the possible outcomes. And it's important to know this because you're probably taking this adventure and trying to fit it into a larger, longer campaign that already has an arc. Yeah, and I'll actually go further. I think good adventures will have a synopsis for each encounter, Mm. uh, or at least each major set of encounters. When we reviewed Song of Erikos from the DMs Guild last week, that was one of the things we noted is there was an objective (laughs) at the beginning of of every scene. Right, what happens in this scene? What should happen in this scene? What should happen in the scene? And all you had to do is read the objectives to get the overall plot. Right. And, and that that was enough. Yeah. At this point, you don't need to get down to like, what are the DCs and let's look at stat blocks. You're just sort of plotting the storyline in your head. Exactly. Or the potential storyline. Right. Now, now here's where I like to study the maps. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> now that I know what this is all building to, mm-hmm. let's go back and see how it builds. Right. So that's when you get into the maps and location names and terrain and you know what encounters are where. And the multiple names for locations, not just what is the proper name of a place, but what is its label name? Right. Is this area A? Is this yeah? <laughs> is this room number fourteen? Exactly. Right. If room number twenty six keeps getting referenced over and over again because it is the great hall and all rooms lead to it, you need to have that in your head. Exactly. Especially when you're reading through in much more detail. Yeah, and those are the types of notes that I like to take. Mm-hmm. Before adventures were sixty dollar books <laughs> that were finally published. You know, when when a module was fifteen bucks and it was cheap paper and black and white, or you I, had five of them in one issue of Dungeon. Yeah, I used to just write this in the margins. Yeah. right. And and that's where I would say, okay, so it keeps referencing room twenty six. Note, <laughs> that's the Great Hall, right? So as I'm reading through it the second and third time, I know. And then you know, depending on the kind of learner you are, it. This can help put the map in your head, and that's a lot more helpful later if if you ever need to improvise, right? You at least know, oh, like to the west, there's a stream, and to the north, there's the cave complex. Right. And then I like to look at the NPCs again, because mm-hmm. those are the characters that I'm going to be playing, whether I'm playing them to get slaughtered in combat or I'm <laughs> going to have to roleplay them one way or the other. I want to know who my characters are. Right. Often, especially old school adventures will just be an entire list of like every NPC in the entire adventure. If you are sort of met with that format, read through them, you know, uh, but you know, you don't need to get into the nitty gritty detail because it's not really going to become apparent to you which ones are the most important and which ones are just sort of a throwaway tavern keeper until you do like your full, your full on read through. I mean, even the way that modern adventures are published now, there's always these asides and, and little like introductions for the GM as to who each of the important NPCs are, but it just interrupts the flow of the adventure. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, in this encounter, this person is here, here's their background, and it's like, all right, hold up. Right. (laughs) Like, what's going on in this encounter? (laughs) Who are you? Right? You gotta separate that reading, or else you're you're just bouncing around too much, or at least I am. Mm -hmm. One thing I like to do in this section, and I don't really do it officially, uh, but when I'm looking at these NPCs, I think, okay, what already established NPC do I have that I could slot into this role? 
or like which name could I change to make it someone that they've already met or that they've heard of just so I can tie this more securely to the world that they've already been in. Yeah, exactly. This is great if you're trying to move things from one setting to another, especially, mm-hmm. you know, if you're playing in Forgotten Realms, maybe they're not exposed to that area or, or whatever, but you know, if you take a Forgotten Realms adventure and try to move it to Eberron, well, now we've got to reskin everything, right? Right. Cross out water Davian. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's now from Sharn. <laughs> and it's at this point that you're going to want to do your, your casual read through. You know, don't try to memorize all the information. And depending on the layout of the adventure, the way that like the actual document is laid out, you might just follow one potential path that the party could take. Like you were saying, you know, you start at the entrance and then they could go left so you look at that room you don't necessarily read through the rooms in numerical order right but i would also just stay apprised of other options you know if there are two exits and you're sort of following the the path to the left just keep in mind what's in the right or glance through sort of like a choose your own adventure book glance through to see what's to the right maybe that's a dead end well it's like case case of chaos where you have Mm -hmm. three factions in one general area and the order that you interact with the factions sort of influences the direction of your adventure right Mm -hmm. and then the decisions that you make so However you read them, you got to kind of keep that in mind, right? As this is possible, but what if it were a little different? Right. When I'm doing this casual read-through, I'm sort of trying to put myself in the mindset of the player. So I'm noting things that seem really interesting, you know, and whether that is interesting to me as a GM because I want to put something there or whether it'll be really interesting to players. Yeah, whether that's an NPC who has a really cool motivation or an encounter that's going to be really fun to play. Mm -hmm. Whatever that is, you want to make notes of those because those are the set pieces that you want to feature. Right. This cave-in, are they going to spend three hours trying to clear it and all it was was just a blocked tunnel because I didn't want them to go that way? Right. (laughs) Make it less interesting. Yeah, Nope. (laughs) (laughs) And then in some instances you can consider or you can decide on the options that are presented in sidebars. You know, it'll say you can use this monster or you can try using a giant instead and while you're reading you can start thinking about oh yeah i definitely want to use a giant or like i just i hate beholders yeah and it gives you a sense of the overall difficulty you'll be able to spot tough spots dead ends where they can rest or they're, they're going to get holed up or there's a bottleneck in the plot where they have to convince the queen of something or else nothing else is going to move forward yeah you definitely want to look for those points of failure in the mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. where there's a problem with the story advancing if something doesn't happen in a certain way and if you're writing an adventure you want to avoid this all the time mm-hmm. but it doesn't always happen especially with some of the older modules oh absolutely you know, mistakes were made <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know if the whole party climbs into the green faced demon's mouth <laughs> it's over well then what right. <laughs> reroll <laughs> so just keep in mind if, if you notice those types of things or knowing your party you think okay well they hate half orcs so the fact that this character is a half orc they're probably going to do something to him mm-hmm. right what does that mean later on you you want right. to kind of anticipate that and right. sort of start to plan around it yeah, and if befriending that half orc is the only way to get through later maybe it's not a half orc then yeah exactly you know, it is their human emissary <laughs> <laughs> once you sort of made these cursory notes then you can do your full read through yeah usually I do the full read through as the session prep, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I read through so the chapter or whatever that I'm expecting to get through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's when you're, you're literally going line by line, cover to cover, you're making your notes, you're compiling your, um, you know, your monster manual entries, mm-hmm. you're putting in your bookmarks and Xing out the stuff that you don't want to use that kind of stuff. Right. The other option, if you don't want to do a full cover to cover read uh, is to just do some light indexing. Uh, I did this when I was running Caves of Chaos. It's just like, oh, okay, there's not a whole lot of plot here. I don't necessarily need to read through every single encounter because they may not go to every room. So just sort of like put some bookmark and tabs so that it's easy to find different sections. I need a stat block when they meet the ogre. Okay, I just flip here. Great. This is also a good thing to do if you've got those sort of living dungeon kind of Mm. scenarios where if the PCs do something in an early room, like trip an alarm, you know, things happen in room 9 12 and 16 further in the dungeon it's a good idea to go ahead and like put a bookmark there so you know as they're going through oh they tripped the alarm well i gotta flip to this page to drag those enemies forward or do whatever changes are going to be made right exactly mark the important locations like that main hall room room 26 right if that is where the barracks are for the giants and then any giants that are met elsewhere 
have sort of a come from that pool, it's very easy to flip back and just cross off two and be like, okay, they're not there anymore. Yeah, exactly. And then you're going to make any changes that you want. You don't have to make changes. If you're just going to run it straight by the book, that's fine. And that's, I think, really useful for people who are just sort of getting their feet wet with GMing and running adventures. Or if you're new to the system right. and you're, you're trying to kick the tires and sort of understand how it plays and that sort of thing. I mean, that's one of the, the best things to do to learn a new system is just run a published adventure. Right? Yeah, buy the book and then you sort of have baseline. Right. And then you can start adjusting. Right. But, you know, once you've got gotten past that point, you know your party best. You probably know who, I mean, unless it's a con game, you probably know what characters are going to be running through this. What will be more fun for your players? What will be possible for the PCs? I mean, maybe the party has a huge hole in their capabilities that they've just been dealing with and if the only way across the chasm is to fly somehow yeah <laughs> whoops <laughs> well good thing we have these you know boots of flying <laughs> they, they were in a chest how strange right uh, yeah i mean this is a, a good way to add ways to help them or ways to increase the challenge right if your part if you know that your party will trivialize some piece of the challenge mm -hmm. you can modify it to ramp up the difficulty so it matches what was sort of expected this is our, also a good time to um, as we mentioned earlier, tie solidify in those connections to what's already been established in your game world and your characters. Right, and that means changing any names that you want or, or locations to put it somewhere that your PCs have heard of or that they've been you know journeying toward. It's quite possible that you're just taking the Tomb of Horrors and slotting it in somewhere. A lot of times the impetus for the adventure you need to change a little bit, mm -hmm. right? For example, the Lost Mine of Fandelver, the adventure that comes with a starter set for D&D, is based on you were hired to escort a dwarf to a town. Well, if you've already been adventuring, perhaps you know that dwarf from some other place and you're just going to check on what happened to him, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what kind of kicks off this adventure. You know, you could, you could kind of modify that so it's not just the cold open, you're all guarding a caravan, <laughs> right? right? Or you meet in a tavern, <laughs> you know, it, you, can, you can build that a little more believably or at least less tropishly. <laughs> you can do that on the back end too. Adventures are usually written so that they can lead into other stories for the party. So there are lots of ways that it can end and many sort of loose ends that you can hang different story hooks on. But if you're running an ongoing campaign, you don't want to leave all of those open-ended simply because you're going to distract your party. They're, they're going to be like, wait, what about, you know, we, we found a, a map to this location. Are, are we going to go there? And Maybe you don't want them to go there. Maybe that's just not important in the campaign or maybe they're on a, on a timeline. So just prune those edges. Yep. And of course, adjust the monsters and treasure to whatever level you like. Yeah. If there's magic items and you don't want magic items, replace them. Mm -hmm. If they're bad magic items and you want good magic items or vice versa, replace them. If you hate Kender, replace them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, good for you. You're one of the good ones. So then, once you've done all this prep, you've got to actually run the adventure. And I feel like there's sort of two options depending on your level of, of prep. One is just doing it straight by the book like we talked about, and then is probably what we do, which is more improvised. Yeah, so if you're going by the book, this means you're going to basically go from the text of the adventure. So mm -hmm. you've got your box text for introducing locations and people. You're going to use that box text. Yeah, just read it verbatim. Well, you could paraphrase. <laughs> if you're doing it by the book and you haven't done like very thorough prep, you just need to make sure that you're getting in any of the little sort of clues right. uh, that the party will, will need later on. Yeah. That's all. But ideally, you've made notes of that. And then you're also just, you know, you'll use the monsters and the NPCs that are in the adventure, mm -hmm. right? No need to pull outside resources for that. Right. And usually, you know, depending on how the interaction with a particular NPC goes, there will be more box text for you to just read. Exactly. Yeah, so one thing I would add here is, depending on how the adventure is actually laid out, you might need to reference monsters from outside of the adventure, mm -hmm. right? So if you've got to pull stuff out of the monster manual because it says there are two rocks in that room, well, they don't have the stat block for rocks, so I got to go get that. One tip here, take a picture of it with your phone. Mm. <laughs> like, that way it's in your hands as soon as you need it right you can always print it out if necessary yeah. i really like to print out monster manual entries i mean this is just a gming thing because then i can make notes in the side like hp and things like that oh i just but yeah. also hate trees i just use scrap paper <laughs> <laughs> so 
And then another tip is make sure that you can take a moment to refresh yourself on what the party is walking into. So if they're their first entrance into the cave, it's fine to take five minutes and say, okay, one second, let me just double check everything. Give it, give it the once over. Remind yourself. Yeah, if you're running an adventure by the book, it's it's almost more like learning a game together for the first time. It's like, hold on, let me read the rules, then I'll explain the rules to you. And you know, I think we most of us have been in that scenario where someone, you know, con games especially, right? Someone is running a published adventure and they they haven't necessarily played it before, and it's fine. It's actually kind of fun. Take the time that you need. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> bathroom break, guys. <laughs> you know, it's just like take five. Everybody grab a drink, and then we'll come back. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing in a regular session when it's like, okay, hold on, let me draw the map, and I'm going to set up the minis. Yeah, exactly. And then this is tough to do when you're running a published adventure because you're sometimes nose down in the book, but keep an eye on the time and pacing and the reactions of the players around the table, Mm -hmm. right? Make sure that they're getting the story beats that are built into the adventure. Yeah, running an adventure by the book because you're doing all that extra reading and referencing it often takes a lot longer than it would if you're just sort of making things up on the fly but even if you're running it as written you do want to take stock of the players that you have at the table at this time and see how they're responding to things are they having a good time do we need to speed this up yeah is there is there a subplot that they've latched onto that they're really enjoying Mm. that you need to sort of build out in front of them (laughs) you know that kind of stuff what if you run it a little more improv style this usually requires a little more familiarity with the plot and the options as presented in the adventure. Uh, maybe that means that you have a flowchart prepped. Maybe it just means you've got a good idea of the consequences that the party's actions may have at individual stages in the storyline. You're probably still reading from those box texts. You know, you still have the book in front of you, so people aren't, aren't going to be confused by that. Uh, but it doesn't have to be verbatim. Feel free to embellish. Feel free to just leave it off to the side make up what you need and then just use it as a reference book and improvisation allows for results that are somewhere between the specific options presented by the adventure if not here are three possible options that the party could take and then you know you turn to the proper page depending on what they decide the takeaway is going back to the caves of chaos right if you have the three different factions the adventure is kind of designed around you allying with one of them if you're going a little more improv style the party could screw it up with all three, right? <laughs> and that's fine, right? There, there's room for those shades of gray. Ultimately, it's more fun, but it is a more advanced technique. I think in this case, a lot of times you're running more off of your prep and notes mm-hmm. and using the adventure just as a reference. You're less focused on running true to what's in the book and more focused on pulling out the key elements of the story. The spirit of the story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, you might look up a name just to make sure you're using the same name right. throughout the session. Right. And like the stat blocks will be handy. I will say, so a note on that. Sometimes I think players have an expectation that if they're going to run a published module, they kind of want to run the module like true to form. Because I think one thing that's that's cool about the hobby and that's cool about published adventures is there there becomes this sort of almost like badge of honor you know Mm -hmm. like i completed the tomb of horrors or like i ran keep on the borderlands right where you know if you go to any internet forums for dnd you'll have people for years asking oh what do i do in this point of lost mine of fandelver Mm -hmm. right so you kind of become part of a community having participated in horde of the dragon queen having participated in you know out of the abyss if you're ripping that stuff out and, and sort of playing with it too much, you're robbing your players of that opportunity as well. So I would I would just caution, if you're going to say, hey, we're going to run Horde of the Dragon Queen, maybe run Horde of the Dragon Queen. Right, right? Like if you're yeah. using it by name. Yeah. Yeah. If, you're, if you've bought Horde of the Dragon Queen, you go, oh, I love this idea. I'm going to pull the intro encounters out of this because I think it's a great way to start fine just don't tell your players yeah. you know it's like we're not running horde of the dragon queen i've pulled horde of the dragon queen <laughs> right if you have old school players who know these modules don't tell them right because i mean there's a certain kind of player that knows where all the hidden stuff yeah, is yeah. and like wants to go find it right <laughs> this is one of the problems of rerunning adventures yeah, yeah. all right so what if you're not going to actually run an adventure as written 
What if you're just going to use it sort of like as another resource? So we talked about this a little bit in episode 25 when we talked about uh, harvesting a defunct campaign. Mm -hmm. But basically what you want to do is pick the elements that you like, you know, and, and figure out what is it about them that's compelling and then use that. Yeah, just like any campaign setting book that you're not using specifically for that campaign setting, use it as a resource, a list of NPCs, different kinds of treasure. You've got fully fleshed out locations, maps, all of these plot hooks. It, it's almost easier to use because you don't need to piece the information together from this sort of encyclopedia setting. It's just ready for you to go. I'll confess, sometimes I just pull the synopsis. <laughs> and I, I do this with Pathfinder especially because their adventure paths are great. But I don't need all of the encounters and everything. I can I can figure that stuff on my own. But I really get inspired by these stories. So I'll tell you, almost everything that happens in any of my games already happened somewhere in Planescape. <laughs> <laughs> so you can just file off the serial numbers and insert like as an entire piece an adventure into a longer campaign just they change all the names yeah know? or you know strip it for parts uh for example the pit of five sorrows which we posted a pdf and a lot of information uh in episode one when i was designing it a lot of that was really heavily influenced by uh, some ad other adventures that i was looking at that had to do with like hidden vaults and dungeons and prisons like uh, Dungeon 141 had an adventure called Vlindarian's Vault, which was there was an insane beholder who had a vault hidden on the elemental plane of fire. And so it was it was just here's the traps and like here's all these crazy things that it has to protect its its assets. And I was like, oh, these are good ideas. Yeah. I like these ideas. <laughs> and then even besides adventures, uh, Dragon 344 had a long treatise on a big dungeon in Ebron, uh, Dreadhold, which was also very useful just for what are some ways that people can sort of traverse these uh, areas that are heavily guarded in that example especially because there were all the magical wards and protections and that sort of thing i think that was super useful right mm -hmm. what about maps i mean i feel like we're constantly stealing maps from published adventures right yeah <laughs> That's... if you buy any adventure it's almost always going to come with a map they're actually the probably the best resource for battle maps mm -hmm. and for specific location maps because you know a campaign setting book will usually have a, a much broader overview you've got a map of an entire country which you know is useful for a little while yeah. but yeah, yeah you really want to get down to one castle or one ruin and adventure is where you're going to go yeah if you need a cave complex that's been occupied by goblins <laughs> let me recommend lost mine of fandelver <laughs> if you need one with orcs and hobgoblins nearby take a look at the caves of chaos yeah <laughs> All right, do you hear that, Ishan? Uh, I think that is the party rolling up a barrel of pitch to the entrance of the Kobold Cave to smoke them out. That's how you're supposed to do it, apparently. Well, if they're Tucker's Kobolds, it's probably time to move on to the Character Creation Forge. <laughs> Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sends Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us if you can't fit it into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And last but not least, you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. So this week's Character Creation Forge, we had a little bit of a problem. Yeah. We wanted to build the Juggernaut, mm -hmm. who is obviously one of the X-Men's villains. Yeah, bursts through walls. Right. It's kind of like the Kool-Aid Man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a problem with the 5e rule set. We don't have DCs for breaking stuff. Yeah. It's a big problem when your concept is to break things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the way that you break things in 5e is it has a number of hit points based on its size and whether it's fragile or sturdy. Right. It's very difficult to do enough damage to an object in one blow to actually break it. You know, you can sort of chip away at it eventually, but that, does, that doesn't really emulate well the vision of like kicking in a door yeah like you could paladin smite the door but you that actually, doesn't seem i very... looked you can't paladin smite the door it only works on creatures only creatures yeah oh. i was totally looking into that Man. <laughs> but i mean a kicking in a door is a thing you want to do so the rules just say this is the kind of thing a strength athletics check might be used for and it's up to the dm to determine what kind of check is required to break something 
So the purpose of this build does have, it does require a bit of GM fiat. You might want to talk to your GM and see if it's something that they're going to allow it, but it seems pretty reasonable. It's not really off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what's the build? All right. The, the, the point of the juggernaut is to, to keep moving, right? Nothing stops the juggernaut. Right. You want to be able to like smash through things and yeah. smash through enemies. Uh, okay. I'm in. And so the best ability for this is, the 14th level Elk Totem Barbarian ability that basically lets you sort of trample. So that's from the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. That's right. So as part of your move, as a bonus action, you move through creature space and then knock it prone. And that's really one of the few ways to get something out of your way and then still deal damage to it. There's not an overrun ability anymore. You can shove things out of your way, but you're wasting an attack because you don't do any damage. So Elk is nice. You can only do it uh, with creatures that are large or smaller. So, you know, you're not going to be able to sho shove dragons out of your way. But that's fine because... Poor Juggernaut. You can do some other cool things. This is actually the first character creation forge build that we have done that does not multi-class. Yeah. Because <laughs> the build is just straight Totem Barbarian 20. And we've talked about this before. The Barbarian Capstone ability at 20 is really, really good. You have unlimited rages per day, so you, you basically you should just be raging all the time. Well, you can't rage all the time. You have to keep attacking stuff. <laughs> Why wouldn't you keep attacking stuff? Because well, you have friends, allegedly. <laughs> bag, uh, bag rats? <laughs> <laughs> and then it also gives you plus four to strength and con, which is extremely handy, as you will see. Human or Goliath is probably good, just in terms of flavor, but... You can really do whatever you want. Yeah, I love Goliath here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, because that's kind of what Juggernaut is, really. Although, if you really want to be like Kane, Marco specifically, human's fine. Yeah, that's yeah. that works. But yeah, Goliath just it fits it so well. They're already seven feet tall. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. For a little more comedy option, you could take the uh, strength dwarf, the mountain dwarf. <laughs> you, you give up some mobility, but <laughs> what you give up in mobility, you get in hilarity. I like the idea of halfling as well because you can move through the space of creatures that are larger than you. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> you've got a hard limit on large-sized creatures. It's not just larger than you, right? right. <laughs> so the only real options you need here are a bear totem at three to give you resistance to everything except psychic while you're raging, and then elk at 14. And there are a lot of other interesting and great totem options. Yeah, I just want to point out how perfect that bear totem is too, right? As far as how you actually stop the juggernaut, it's never physical, right? Yeah, right. It's, it's always Charles calming him down. <laughs> <laughs> as for feats, mobile is really good. The juggernaut doesn't need to be fast, but what mobile does is if you uh, hit someone, they can't make an opportunity attack, and that avoids the sentinel issue right. where they're stopping your movement, and that, that's just not flavorful no, for you to be stopped no, by an opportunity attack. garbage. Yeah. <laughs> and then martial adept is great because that lets you get pushing attack. So you spend a superiority die, and when you hit someone, you can push them up to 15 feet away. And you're probably going to succeed because your strength is so good. Right, right. Now, you might be wondering, wait, no rogue? Because we built a couple grapplers now, and of course, to get that athletics check as high as possible, you want expertise. But we're actually not trying to get our athletics check as high as possible. We're trying to get our strength check. Because if a DM is going to say, okay, you're going to break this, or you're going to knock something down... They might say, no, this isn't really athletics. This is just brute force. It's always at least going to be a strength, strength check. check. Yeah. It sucks a little bit that we've got to plan around DM fiat yeah. because, you know, I would, I would say charging shoulder first <laughs> <laughs> through a door. That's athletics. Yeah. But your mileage may vary. Never so know. play it safe. Boost your strength. Mm -hmm. And that, that's really all you need for this build is, is strength. The reason we're going so high with Barbarian is at level 18, you get Indomitable Might, which means when you make a strength check, which you already have advantage on because you'll be raging, if your end result is lower than your base strength score, you can just use your strength score. And so you're going to basically have minimums of 20, and at level 20, you're going to have a minimum of 24 on any strength check that you make. Well, as long as you're raging. <laughs> but at level 20, you'll have Persistent Rage, right, so you right. should always be raging. So because you got that bonus action. That's right. <laughs> So Barb 20, you're constantly raging. 24 strength without items. I will say, though, the, the Juggernaut has his armor and his helmet, right? That's so, Yeah, that's the key here. Mm -hmm. I think it's okay if we sort of talk about potentially using some items here. I like spiked armor, the Dwarven Battle Rager spiked armor, because you, know, you, you just 
he doesn't really carry weapons, right? He right. sort of punches, but that's it's nice because it's it gets around any of the like unarmed damage, unarmed attack, weirdness. Yeah. He's not a monk. Right. Yeah. Belts of giant strength are always great here. Or gauntlets of ogre power. Mm-hmm. And if you can get the hammer of thunderbolts, you're not going to use it. Just hold it in your hand because that can get your strength to 30. So this is the most important part of this build for me. <laughs> <laughs> because once your strength is 30, you automatically move an immovable rod. Right. Which, again, shows nothing stops the nothing juggernaut. Stops the juggernaut. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> A 30, I think, should be good enough to burst through any door and most non-adamantine walls. I mean, probably most adamantine walls as well. Even even so. I, I mean, you frankly, can take a look at the uh, break DCs from 3.5. At the lower end, they're probably fine. At the higher end, you're going to want to bring them down a little because 5e has bounded accuracy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, getting a check over 40 is basically impossible without expertise. So Yeah, I'm not even sure you can get to 40. You can. Oh, oh we, we got like a we got 41 to 41. with like the, <laughs> yeah, with, the grappler. With, with bless. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. The bless juggernaut. Huh? Technically true. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so build it, and at level 20, you can auto-move immovable rods. You're welcome. So tell me, <laughs> how did you become the juggernaut? <laughs> I think uh, my character discovered a gem that was tied to a fiend. No, wait, I'm just, I'm actually ripping off the juggernaut. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a runner. Oh, we're going, you're going Forrest Gump too, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Because it was just my, my answer was he broke stuff and just kept breaking stuff. <laughs> I mean, certainly this character has some sort of compulsion. Oh, yeah. Right? Some mental infirmity. <laughs> I don't want to be here. I don't know where I want to be. I want to be here. on the other side of whatever that is. <laughs> I wish I could climb mountains, but nope, I'm just going through this wall. No, I, I mean, I do. I think there is something to be said for that, right? The idea of of never being contained, right? So you could build something like um, he was falsely imprisoned and escape slave had background. To esca- yeah, something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, I think that works. Um, maybe even a sailor or pirate type thing with good athletics, right? You could mm-hmm. easily swim off a boat. <laughs> yeah, so, I got it. Abused child kept in a box. Uh, that's, uh, that's tragic and that's terrible, right? Difficult to. Mm. I don't really want that in my game, though. I don't want to have it's to. It's just con- backstory. It's I don't want to backstory. have to confront that. <laughs> it molds the psyche, right? And eventually got strong enough to to break out of the box. Yeah, I think that's probably an important flavor distinction for this character. Is that you're not a barbarian in the sense of barbarian tribes kind of thing. You're a barbarian in the sense of uncontrollable rage. Right. I cannot be contained. Yeah. There's so play up that mental weakness right like this is a character flaw for you yeah dump intelligence and wisdom yeah yeah in the most basic way yeah (laughs) be big and strong (laughs) let someone point you in a direction and let nothing deviate you from that direction right all right if you want to support the show the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on itunes and if you're willing to help us out we'll read your five-star review on the air you can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. And you can now find us on Google Play, though you can't review us there yet. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We've got the next installment of our series on playing non-human characters. This time we'll be talking about Dragonborn. And in the Character Creation Forge? We're building a Talon of Tiamat. Well, that's it for episode 42 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Yushin. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.